The facts, even when beaded on a chain, still did not have real order. Events did not flow. The facts were separate and haphazard and random, even as they happened. Episodic, broken, no smooth transitions, no sense of events unfolding from prior events. Tim O'Brien, going after Cacciato. Welcome to Brett Easton Hell Yes, the only podcast I'm aware of that is solely dedicated to the works of Brett Easton Ellis. I am your host, Katie Wright. This week, I am joined by Sirius XM producer Andrew Marcello, and we're going to discuss the 1987 novel, The Rules of Attraction. Andrew, how are you? Hi, good afternoon, Katie. I'm doing (laughs) well. Good. Is it evening? It's evening in New York, right? It's getting darker. Yeah, it's kind of been dark all day. It's very sunny here in LA. I'm sorry. Of course it is. You're in the like polar vortex right now, right? Is it miserable outside? Yeah, I've mostly been trying to stay inside. So Andrew, thank you so much for being here. When I decided to do a podcast that required my guests to read books, I kind of didn't think through how hard it was going to be to get people to commit to that. So I really appreciate that you stepped up. So before we get into talking about the rules of attraction, uh, I want to know a little bit about your history with Brett Easton Ellis, if one exists. Did you know anything about him before you read this? Do you have any familiarity with his work? Sure. So yeah, not to put the cart before the horse, but my history with Brett Easton Ellis actually ties in to this book. And I was going to say when we were talking about the weather and the contrast between the East Coast and the West Coast, there is a character in Rules of Attraction who on the East Coast longs for the sun and the warmth of the West Coast, who I recognized from the only Brett Easton Ellis book that I have read, Less Than Zero. So that's about the extent of my real history. I I know of, you know, American Psycho. I actually haven't even seen that movie. Yeah. I, can, I like that I can see your face so that yeah. I can judge your silent reactions. <laughs> um, I had a friend in college recommend to me in the summer to read Less Than Zero. He was like, you got to read this book. I think you'd really like it. And I did. And so I knew also that characters from some of his earlier books show up in his later books. So I was excited to see how that tied in to Rules of Attraction. And it was rewarding to have read less than zero and be reading Rules of Attraction. Aside from that, I didn't really know what to expect beyond you had given me a choice between, I think, two books, and one of them you said was more intense than the other one. And this one, I mean, was pretty... There's a graphic scene in Less Than Zero, and there's some pretty graphic stuff in Rules of Attraction, so I shudder to think of what you think could <laughs> be worse, but I guess I'll find out when I listen to the later episodes of your podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Less Than Zero is fucked up. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- this, like, will you agree, Good you review. agree that Less Than Zero... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping my Less Than Zero review into this one. <laughs> Less Than Zero is fucked up. Moving on. Um, is that all you're uh, touching on less than zero? Yeah, like, that's it. Oh, that's wow. All there, what else is there to say? Wow. <laughs> so you, I, I didn't realize that you had read less than zero. Yes. Will you agree that that book is like considerably more fucked up than this one? Like this one's dark, but there's no murders. There's no child rape. Yeah. No, that, <laughs> it's definitely more fucked up in terms of what the content is. 
I think in some ways rules of attraction actually made me more uncomfortable at points. And maybe if I had read them back to back, I'd feel differently because this was it was years ago that I read Less Than Zero. Um, and maybe I'm like, oh, that's the book with where the 12 year old gets raped. Um, <laughs> it's settled in, you know. Yeah. But there are definitely there are two or three parts I can think of in Rules of Attraction where I I looked away from the book <laughs> as if it was going to keep going without me reading it. I have done that at so many different points in reading the works of Freddie Stanellis, like physically closed my eyes. Yeah. I think like because less than zero, it almost seems more matter of fact, like, oh, this mm. is happening. This is the way that this is in this world. Whereas the way that certain things are described in Rules of Attraction, it's, they get, I guess, more graphic at points, at least, you know, to my recollection. I don't remember it being so graphically descriptive in less than zero. And again, maybe I'm wrong because it has been a while. No, that's fair. Less than zero, I think, has like moments of being graphic, but for the most part, its kind of thing is being like detached and and yeah. sort of like casual, which I guess, depending on how you feel, can make it more disturbing or like more palatable. But I wanted to ask: so you said that there are like three points that jump out at you as like the most upsetting things in this book. What were those three points for you? Well, I think right off the bat, first of all, I thought that something was wrong with my copy of the book. <laughs> yeah. And I sort That's of had That's common, to... actually. A lot of people who read it think that they're like, <laughs> that it's like a fucked up edition. And I don't know what I would do in a different era. I guess I would have to like look on bookshelves just to make sure. But I actually Googled it and I was like, uh -huh. is this is this right? Am I missing a page? So the book, to give context, the book starts in the middle of a sentence. Oh, yeah. Is... Let me... I wanted to read just a little bit of the opening to give like a sense of the kind of like weird tone of this book. So this is this is how it opens. And it's a story that might bore you, but you don't have to listen, she told me, because she always knew it was going to be like that. And it was, she thinks, her first year or actually weekend, really a Friday in September at Camden. And it goes on like that. It just yeah. goes on and on like that. And yeah, it's mid-sentence, lowercase when it starts. It's funny to me to hear you read that out loud, because <laughs> to me, the pacing in my head I can, it doesn't seem so jarring when I read it on the page. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was kind of playing up the weirdness of it. <laughs> There's definitely a, a less bizarre reading of it, but you know, you can also read it that way. <laughs> but you still haven't told me what are the, oh, what right. were the parts that freaked you out? I guess it didn't, it doesn't freak me out so much this, this first one, it, but it definitely unsettled me how the book opens on a rape mm. and actually I had the thought while I was reading this opening passage I'm about to read Brett Kavanaugh the book like this is <laughs> oh god yeah and it sort of is it it Fuck. fulfilled <laughs> in some ways it is you know a bunch of little Brett Kavanaugh's and Brett Kavanaugh's victims running around a, a northeast college campus so it it is good at setting the tone for the book but it's also it it uh, unsettled me. I guess it didn't disturb me as much as unsettled me. It, yeah. I, it had to get me in, in the right mood for what was going to come. The worst part for me, the part where I really had to look away for, for a book in all its futility, was the, the italicized girl's last chapter. Mm, yeah. And actually, I remember when Sean leaves the party with Lauren... And she's so devastated and she's 
like I'm not going to write him letters anymore. My first very innocent thought in retrospect was, oh, no, I hope she has more chapters. And I like flipped through to make sure there were more italics. And I was like, okay, good. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah. That is is very graphic. I would say that was the most graphically disturbing thing I read in the book. For me personally. Yeah. Her her cutting her wrists open. Mm how descriptive that was the language being used even how she went about it and it almost comically compares to sean trying trying i guess to kill himself later yeah i love sean's suicide attempt he i think he tries to hang himself with the necktie but like the necktie snaps and he just drops on the floor and then he just like goes to the to the cafeteria and like gets some food like he doesn't even think about trying again. He's just like, eh, and just moves on. He tr- also tries to cut himself with a really <laughs> dull razor. Right. But he's just like pressing it. And <laughs> yeah. that, I think, I think the necktie comes first, but it's the razor that's the more vivid comparison because she's like almost beautifully cutting herself open in the bathtub. Right. And then he's just like jamming this dull razor into his arm a few times He's like, oh, well, I guess it doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> right. I'll go fuck off. Yeah, there is, it is like a really, a really interesting comparison because her, her, you're right. It's her suicide is like written really like beautifully and lyrically. And she's like, I think she's like the only narrator in the book who doesn't seem to speak in a kind of like stream of consciousness voice. Mm-hmm. Like she, she speaks in like a, like literary composed voice. I don't know what that's supposed to signify, but she does like stand out from the other narrators, partially because we don't know who she is until like basically until she dies. Yeah. We learn her name was Mary, but we don't learn anything about her. Oh, I didn't even figure out who she was. I figured that was the point. Yeah, it's it's like kind of thrown away, but they're like she she just refers to somebody saying like Mary, blah, blah, blah it's like towards the end of her existence as a character i don't remember when it was but yeah it's really easy to miss it's like incidental her identity is clearly not important and i guess maybe like giving her a name kind of drives home the fact that her identity is not important even more because it's like it's not like a mystery like oh who was she it's like we know who she was but who who gives a shit yeah it's just some girl yeah but yeah so she has this like beautiful beautiful tragic description of her own death and then there's this fucking fucking dumbass goofball (laughs) what does lauren i i should have marked what lauren calls sean one of the first times she thinks about him because it really follows through and if she had listened to her first impression of him things in this book would be very different oh god i don't remember what she called him yeah she gives it's like sean insulting yeah oh something like very casually insulting but yeah it's like like just like seeing him being like oh that fucking asshole Right. I know there's a lot of talk of him being like a dirt bag or or whatever, like a sleaze bag. So the last thing before we move on from this line of discussion mm-hmm. that really disturbed me, mm-hmm. we're just jumping all over the place. I love it. We're jumping in with the most disturbing <laughs> like stuff. So yeah, <laughs> fair enough. We're jumping all over the place with the most disturbing stuff first. Very appropriate for the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Yeah, for sure. The abortion. Mm-hmm. And the abortion disturbed me with how casual it was. And I've never, I don't think I've read an abortion being described before. Mm-hmm. I don't even 
you know, this is me being a cis man. Like, I don't even think I really knew or after reading this book, know any better how medical (laughs) abortion works, but just like how casual the language is. At one point, there's like two sentences in a row that are just two words and then it's over. Yeah. And that that disturbed me. And then Lauren's next chapter is a blank page. Yeah, that's really that's really like jarring and a really interesting choice. Like for the most part, I kind of don't like, I don't know, like experimental formatting in <laughs> literature. I feel like it's kind of uh like a cheat, <laughs> a cheat code to seeming interesting. But I actually really like Lauren just having a, a blank chapter. I feel like it it really resonated with me of like yeah she's just kind of in a place where her inner monologue is sort of not happening right Mm -hmm. now like she just feels like a blank um uh, yeah what did you did you like that there was a blank chapter did that work for you I did like that and again speaking of contrasts to Sean I think it was great how I mean not great but great (laughs) within the context of the book and the writing style how he goes out and is just like back to partying living his life and she is gone. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the abortion was one of the most disturbing parts for you because it kind of like didn't really bother me that much. I, I guess like I'm a cis woman, so I could potentially have an abortion at some point. So maybe it's just that like I've thought about abortions <laughs> enough because I've been in situations where I thought like that I might be pregnant and I had to think about like, oh, would I get an abortion that like I've already worked through that? <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't a new it wasn't new or jarring for me. I was I was like, yeah, old news. <laughs> but then the part that actually did get me was her her blank chapter. So it's just very sad. <laughs> in some ways, I think for me, even in that moment, I felt like Lauren wasn't as prepared as you're talking about. And I think that added to it for me, like as it's happening, it's so matter of fact, and then it's like over. And to me, it felt like she doesn't even know what to think or feel about it before that blank chapter. It's just like that, that is what happened. And now it's over. And so then the blank chapter drove that home for me even more. Yeah. And that the like, the decision to have the abortion, right, like she and Sean. Oh, my God, don't get me fucking started. (laughs) So she and Sean like run away. Now we're at the end of the book. We're at the end of the book. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) She and Sean like run away together. They're going to elope and then just sort of they spend too much time together and they're they stop liking each other and their relationship just kind of quietly falls apart without them ever really talking about it. And they had been planning on like raising this baby together. And then they're just kind of like driving and Sean out of nowhere is just like I'll pay for it. Like, that's the conversation uh, they have about the abortion. That part got to me much more than the actual oh, abortion really? scene. Yeah, it was just like, was that like the discussion of like, our life together is over and we're not going to have this baby. It was just like them staring out two separate windows silently and then him saying, I'll pay for it. Like, so cold <laughs> and so just like bereft of any feeling. That was much more upsetting to me. That's interesting. I felt like that was putting the whole situation out of its misery. When you said they no longer liked each other, I think is what you just said. In my head, I was like, did they ever like each other? Because Sean clearly thought that he liked Lauren. He thought he was like enamored with this girl. My take is that 
Sean Bateman is in love with himself and his <laughs> perceived affection for Lauren is just an extension of his own personal narcissism. And she, I think, to me, it felt like never really was fully putting up with him, let alone, you know, liking him or loving him. There was some aspect to Sean Bateman where there's still that, like, Sean, oh, this asshole Bateman. Yeah, you're right. It, it was, yeah, it's um, it's a misstatement to say that they, that they stop liking each other, but they stop functioning mm. as an item or yeah. or the illusion of liking each other falls apart. And it does seem to deteriorate to us rather quickly. Because it's yeah. over the span of like a week or two or more, but right. it's just like we see it deteriorate in like a couple pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is also um, I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time talking about non rules of attraction Brett Easton Ellis novels, but this is also something he does in American Psycho, where there's like an entire summer of Patrick like being normal with his girlfriend and like them having a lovely time. And then they start, they start fighting, and then he starts like fucking with her in little ways. It's it's like an entire summer, and it's condensed into like two pages of talking about things being nice, and then like two pages of talking about things getting dark. And it just feels like Brett Easton Ellis like always like condenses the nice parts of life as much yeah. as possible, and like stretches out. <laughs> the horrible parts for as many pages as he can, which I guess is, I guess is so, so somewhat reflective of how like life feels, right? Like the good stuff feels like it flies by and the horrible stuff feels like it never ends. Like, I guess I can kind of see why he would do that. Yeah. Especially, you know, from a certain point of view, or if you're trying to portray a certain point of view and I, I understand that point of view. And actually, you saying that reminds... I haven't read American Psycho, um, but that actually kind of reminds me of Less Than Zero as well, where they're flash when he flashes to Clay's vacation, which is the same kind of thing. It seems very nice and homely at first. And then it's like that, like... There, it's more that realization of, oh, this can't last forever. But it there's there's something to that feeling to me in Rules of Attraction, too. Even if they're both not consciously feeling it. You, the reader, have this feeling of like, there's this can't last forever. They're not going to go get married. They're not going to have a baby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Were you ever, did you ever feel like that was going to last? No. Was there ever a point? Yeah, no, obviously. <laughs> I mean, the um, whole book leading up to that too is like these, <laughs> these people are, I mean, Lauren isn't a steady relationship type person and the person she wants to be in a steady type relationship with her doesn't even remember her name. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing to not get me started on motherfucking Victor. Oh no, I want to get you started on Victor. Oh, Go God. Let's talk about him. Do you know that he has his own book? I, I have, I did a little bit of research and I did learn that interesting. I don't, <laughs> it seems like other people like Victor more than I did. Because my friend, I have the friend who recommended me Less Than Zero. I had texted him when I started reading Rules of Attraction. I told him I was reading it, and he was like, "Oh, I didn't like that one as much, but I loved this scene from the movie." And he sent me like the Victor uh, montage from the movie, and that scene in the or that chapter in the book, she Lauren goes to bed, and is like dreaming or like thinking of Victor and like saying his name before she falls asleep, and then I'm like, "Oh, this Victor guy." What a life. I mean, 
I knew a lot of Victors in college. I'll say that. But what bothered me about Victor is just how, like, detached he is. And, like, I totally get it. But, like, he's not a guy I'd want to be friends with. Yeah, no. He just kind of seems insufferable. Yeah. He's a huge piece of shit. And I didn't didn't have... I didn't have any fondness for Victor when I read Rules of Attraction. In Glamorama, you get to know him a little bit better, and he's kind of more pathetic, and that's okay. when I start to like him more. Um, of course. But yeah, in Rules of Attraction, he's he's just kind of like a stand-in for like every bad romantic experience you've ever had right (laughs) like every experience where you've been like oh I loved that person and they never gave a shit about me Mm -hmm. and I was lying to myself he's just every single one of those people and he has seemed like almost no inner life (laughs) like he narrates he narrates the things that are happening to him but he has like very little (laughs) response it doesn't seem like anything really registers with him that's interesting I didn't think about that yeah, it's. I'm probably partially bringing in that I've read Glamorama, and that's kind of a big, the big thing of Glamorama is that he's a narrator who's sort of like it's like it's being narrated by a dog. <laughs> like it just, he just doesn't have like critical thinking ability. So Victor sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did did Victor land with you as like a realistic character? You you already said he did, right? You said yeah. He did in in that way of like you know, just totally freewheeling, like you said, detached, or maybe I said detached, I don't remember. Um, Who knows? Again, I didn't think of him so much as someone who's, like, not totally there or, like, even airheady. I just thought of him as someone who, like, sees himself as above it all, like, very, like aloof, at least in this book. And he's just, like, flittering about, not letting anything stick onto him. That That, to me, in this book, read more as, like, a willful thing, like a choice mm. to live the kind of life that he's living. Yeah. The life of a vagrant asshole. <laughs> I feel like we obviously don't get that much Victor in this book, but I feel like there's the one thing that sticks out to me as kind of the hint that he's sort of lacks agency in his own life is he's like describing all the stuff he did in Europe he's like I went to see this I did this I like fucked this girl and then he he, there's this part where he's just like I crashed at this guy's house and he got into bed with me and he wanted me to jerk him off and I wasn't into it but I didn't have anywhere to go so I jerked him off and then like he just keeps going um it's like like that's an upsetting situation but it does it like doesn't register with him so that's just kind of the, like the one moment that sort of ties into how he's depicted in Glamorama more of like mm. stuff just kind of happens to him and like he doesn't even realize that like he's being put in bad situations. Interesting. Yeah. I think at least in that, you know, in that passage, I have no insight from Glamorama, but it feels like he's almost like, again, choosing to give up that that control where he's just like, well, whatever happens to me happens to me. If I've got to like jerk off a guy to sleep somewhere. All right. Like, again, I knew, I knew people like this guy. So like, I know someone who would do that. Like the Firefest documentary just came out and everyone's talking about Andy King and like, you know, he, for some reason he accepted this situation. He thought he was being put into where he'd have to, to suck some Bahamian officials dick 
to get some fucking wa- bottled water out of customs. So I can totally believe a guy just like needing somewhere to sleep and not like not out of desperation, just out of like, all right, this is this is the way it is. I guess I got to jerk him off now. <laughs> yeah fair enough (laughs) i mean that is that is a thing that happens that's real okay so so victor is a somewhat realistic (laughs) character yeah he's a he's a caricature based on a very real archetype of person yeah uh what do you think about the the other like our our main narrators lauren and sean and paul who (laughs) don't have have we talked about paul at all oh boy i think that says Um, something (laughs) Um, did it? Did they land with you as realistic characters? Do you feel like you know people like them, or like you are a person like any of them? For me, when I started reading this book, it was like I was clawing to make a connection to these characters, <laughs> and then I realized it was totally okay that maybe I didn't have such a personal connection to any of these characters. That's the Brett Easton Ellis experience is <laughs> just like embracing the fact that you don't really connect with anyone. That's, I think, why I liked Less Than Zero, because Less Than Zero is about embracing the fact that you don't connect to anyone. And then, of course, Clay is flitting about not connecting to anyone and wishing he was anywhere but the place that he is right now. I saw parts of myself in, and this isn't, you know, the only way to relate to literature. I saw parts of myself in in Paul and Lauren, uh, not so much in Sean, which, again, I think is okay. Paul, it was that... (laughs) Without getting too personal, Paul is is the type of a pre- he's he's got this obliviousness to him that I don't have so much, but like I totally get you're in that position where you're blinded by the way you feel about someone, so you don't see these obvious things. Like when Mitchell says to him, "Like I warned you," and he's like, "Oh, did he?" and he has to <laughs> mentally look back and be like, "Oh." I guess. And then it becomes this huge pile out of like, I guess all these times that all these things happened uh, were me being warned. Yeah, that that is very real. That's yeah. happened to me so many times in my life. And then you get that set up and you see it happen in real time with Sean Bateman, mm-hmm. which I want to, I want to get into that disconnect between Paul and Sean in yeah. a little bit, um, because I find that interesting, especially in the way that, I read that versus how other people seem to read it. But I guess real quick, Lauren for me was, I guess that like more that misanthropic streak. (laughs) Like she more than, more than Paul and Sean seemed to have a disdain for the things that were going on, but she still played into it. So it was like, Mm -hmm. I could recognize her, but also detest her. <laughs> Interesting. What I I find Lauren to be like the most sympathetic character in this book and the one that I connect to the most. I'm curious, what do you detest about her? I I detest and again this might be somewhat personal. I detest that she has patterns that she doesn't seem to like not only doesn't doesn't remedy but doesn't even seem to recognize, which is frustrating. Maybe I shouldn't say detest, but it made it not not disliking her as a character. But it, if she was a person, I would get frustrated because I'd be like, look, look at this, re- like this repeated behavior. You keep doing the same shit to yourself like over and over again and you don't even see it, which is it's it is definitely sympathetic. But it's again, it's almost overblown to a point of like, please get it together. I'm begging <laughs> yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Let's take a break here 
And when we get back, we can get into the Paul and Sean saga and what is really happening there. Hi, I'm Eric. I'm Liam. And I'm Tom. We're all experts on something or other. One time, I ate the Declaration of Independence. I can name all 52 playing cards. I have read the back of every cereal box. I've eaten the back of every cereal box that Eric has read. And on our podcast, we tell you all about something that we know nothing about. We speculate wildly. And then we eat cereal boxes, no? No, and then we research that topic. Good catch, Eric. Enjoy such topics as Goofus and Cowlitz. Jenko Jeans. The University of Phoenix. Ooh, the cursed one. <laughs> and many, many more. On We Are Experts. Experts. Oh, were we, did you all want us to say it? No. <laughs> Fridays on the Major Cats Network. Or wherever you find literature. And we're back. All right. So, Andrew, you said that what you think is going on between... Paul and Sean is not what other people think is going on. So what start with what do other people think? Yeah, well, this is my perception of what other people think, which is, again, based on some very basic research on the Internet. Mm -hmm. I didn't do any types of deep dives. And I feel like I always regret actually looking up books because of this reason, because what other people think and even what tends to be in like general summaries. I'm like, that wasn't my interpretation of what was going on. (laughs) So... What I had heard about rules of attraction or red was that there are incongruent events. And so one narrator might say one thing and another narrator might say something contradicting that. I did not at all get that impression from Paul really? and Sean. Really? No. You thought you thought their stories lined up? I I felt like it was more based on perception and the way that we perceive our lives and reality than like them presenting actual alternate versions of events so let me (laughs) i just said a lot of words there i'll give an example (laughs) um are you pulling something up no i I just (laughs) i just kind of got lost in myself there i don't even know what i just said no worries no i get i get what you're saying and i do think it's not it's not necessarily a full like Rashomon. Like they're not maybe not directly contradicting each other. And I do think that the book to a large degree is about how just like, you know, we're all hyper focused on whatever our one concern is. And we think like, oh, you know, my thing is the center of the narrative and everybody has a different impression of what that is. Right. But there are some if it's not direct contradictions, there are just some strange omissions. Okay. Um, (laughs) their stories. The the main thing being that Sean and Paul seem to be spending a lot of time. If we're, if we're to, if we're to believe what Paul says, Mm -hmm. they are spending a lot of time together. They're fucking a lot. Um, and they're doing a lot of romantic things together. And Sean, he mentions Paul in his narration a couple times. And when he does, it's like 
this dude, like there's this dude, Paul, that I kind of know. There's no hint that there's like anything going on between them. He's not like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I hooked up with this dude a couple times, but he like doesn't mean anything to me. It's just like, I don't know that guy. <laughs> like uh, he really does not give the impression that there is a relationship there at all. So that's like a, that's a weird disconnect that isn't easily explained just by like perceptions being different. I think that's fair. I think for me, because before the break, I had mentioned his situation with Paul's situation with Mitchell um, and him specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, saying I warned you and Paul's whole need to go back and, and re you know, think about all those times. (laughs) I think to a large extent for me, that's explained by, I don't think there was really much of a relationship at all there. I think Paul allowed himself to not imagine um, not imagine the things that happened, but imagine the existence of this relationship that wasn't there. So I think that the things that Paul talks about happens. I think that when you say all these romantic things happened, Sean would perceive those things as like casual or friend things or even, you know, not friend things. He's just like got this guy around and Sean does not mention sex with Paul does he mention it ever he doesn't mention it very much if ever no Sean does not mention it at all like I I this isn't my reading but it would be a supportable argument to say that like they they never had sex and like Paul was imagining it I don't think that but like based on based on the amount that Sean talks about it you could argue that I think Sean is just again like like you said fixated on other things and it's not that it doesn't happen and it's not even that maybe sean doesn't register it i took it as sean doesn't register it as something significant enough to write about or whatever is going on in the narration however that's being delivered his mind is on partying on whoever's leaving him these notes on getting drugs on avoiding his debt he doesn't have much regard for paul i think they do have a physical relationship. He just doesn't like care about it. It's almost as matter of fact as Victor being like, I've got to jerk this guy off, except we don't <laughs> right. even see Sean being it doesn't even matter of fact about that. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. My kind of my main interpretation of it was always that like Sean is blackout drunk a lot of the time yeah, and like too. maybe just not, maybe not aware that he's fucking paul because he's just he just doesn't remember it they do paul does say he gets frustrated with sean's need to get relentlessly stoned beforehand because it's not just getting stoned he asks him like why do you have to get stoned and he's like getting high but then also like chemicals or something i don't even remember huffing glue what does he do it's something (laughs) they go out to like a store yeah some kind of like chemical inhalation and then they do it and he's right. like, man, why do you have to like get so stoned before we do it? And he's like, shut up. <laughs> right. Let's talk about Paul. Okay. I I first read The Rules of Attraction when I was in college. And I went to college a little bit late. So I was like 23. I was in college. And at the time that I read it, first of all, I loved it. It blew my mind. I was like, this is the first book I've ever read that like gets dating and like gets what it's all about. This is how it is. Really landed with me hard that first time I read it. And I I really felt like, okay, Paul is like the kind of nice everyman, like decent dude character. And Sean is the like piece of shit sleazeball character. 
And then revisiting it on rereading it just uh, like a month ago, I was like, holy shit, Paul is like, I think Paul is much worse than Sean and is like, and is like a terrible person in a way that seems obvious and intended by the narration. And I'm like, how the fuck did I miss it? (laughs) Because Paul is like, Sean undeniably is a sleazeball Mm -hmm. and not like a very nice guy. He says unkind things. He does unkind things. He's not a good dude. But Paul seems like, actively predatory like Mm. he's he's like he seems like really like he seeks out people who are compromised to get intimate with and he like puts pressure on people Mm -hmm. to do things that they don't want to do like sean is getting like super fucked up and then collapsing on Paul's bed and being like, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. And Paul's like, great. <laughs> this is, this is enthusiastic consent to me. Or like one of the first things we see of Paul is like, he's, he went home with some girl and she was super, she's like super, super drunk and they're like making out. And then she passes out and he's like, Hmm, she's unconscious. Should I feel her up? I guess I don't feel like it. But he's yeah. not like I she's unconscious. There's also this scene where um they're they're the third the third uh, attempted suicide in this book is is Paul's friend. I forgot his name, but he tries to kill himself and like his friends need like they are all trying to take this guy to the hospital and Paul is just like super shitty and pissed about it cuz he's like I was going to get dinner with Sean and like he totally does not care at all that this guy oh my tried God, to kill that's himself. Right. Why did I think? I thought that was Sean for some reason. I like had remembered that being Sean. Sean's so it just feels like it. Yeah, <laughs> it just, Sean seems like he presents physically as a sleazeball. Um, and Paul seems like he presents as like clean cut. Like I think Paul's the the Kavanaugh here. Mm, Sean I is, think that's fair. No, totally. Sean looks like a Sean like looks like a drifter, <laughs> but Paul is like, oh no, I'm respectable. Yeah, bad man. I think in some ways, what the things that you're getting at, I feel like, are meant almost to be like archetypal of that kind mm-hmm. of student. Because when you said Brett Kavanaugh, I had already been thinking like, you know, Paul is far from the only person at that college who would try to sexually assault sure. a passed out person. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure that that's the norm at the, at this college and at a lot of colleges. But, you know, we never see Sean, like, considering molesting a passed out person for what it's worth. I I could name things that, well, I guess it wouldn't be morally Maybe worse. It's just more, like, immediately repugnant, I guess. Yeah, so I see what you're getting at. He's an asshole. He's a dick. But I don't really see him, like, violating people. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's a now, lot yeah, now of... I'm like trying now I'm trying to think, and there's a lot of I think that Sean and Paul both suck, but I think that Paul sucks in a very insidious way. Hmm. And Sean like sucks hard up top, but that's kind of like there's nothing more below the surface. Like that's that's all it is. One thing I didn't see related to Paul in this book was how you're supposed to connect him and Lauren like if you're even supposed to like I feel like there's some kind of like feeling where you're maybe supposed to want Lauren to get with Paul but I do you think so I don't know maybe I thought you were supposed to read Paul as pretty much like 
totally gay. Like there's a little there's a little bit of stuff with Paul and girls, but it seems like he's n- it doesn't seem like you're supposed to be rooting for him to get with a woman to me. I think you're supposed to well I think you're su- may, well, I don't know. Maybe this was like a perception of mine. I thought you were supposed to want Lauren to want to get with Paul instead of Sean, <laughs> but I didn't. So I'm definitely not saying that because <laughs> I did because I didn't. Um but I felt almost like why I don't know. That's an interesting idea. I definitely have never, never felt like the book wanted me to want Lauren to get with Paul. And I didn't really feel like we were necessarily supposed to connect them to each other as much as we were supposed to see the domino effect of like how everybody is pursuing somebody who doesn't care about them and is like being pursued by somebody they don't care about. Yes, okay. Because then she has Victor. So it's just like a kind of a chain more than it's like a like a triangle. Yeah, it's like that Malcolm in the Middle episode, except it's not, there's no healthy acknowledgement that there's an imbalance in these relationships. Wait, which which Malcolm I in the just, Middle episode? I don't remember. I'm only thinking about it because I just watched it. There's, I don't remember the name of it. There's, I asked people on Twitter which episode I should watch out of a list. Yeah. There's this scene where Hal is talking with Lois. She thinks he's cheating on her. And then he's like, no, I, I would never think about anyone else. And she's like, well, I think about other people. How could you not? That would mean that you love me more than I love you. And he's like, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, and I loved, okay. I loved I at the moment that. how matter of fact that was. And reading yeah. this book, I was like, I wish if there was just this acknowledgement that one person loves the other more. But instead, yeah, yeah it's that constant like cat and mouse almost. Right. Well, that's the difference. I guess that's the difference between being 20 and being 40, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that's the, that's the growth that happens. Does Brady Sinellis rate healthy 40 year olds? No. <laughs> I, <didn't, laughs> I did not expect. I wanted before to get at, we already kind of had, because we talked about Clay and we talked about Victor, but I wanted to talk about Patrick, the last character oh, who appears in this book and, of course, appears in another Brady Sinellis book, Patrick Bateman. Who comes off, I don't know, he seems all right, maybe by comparison to Sean. Comes off totally normal. Yeah. Uh, not totally normal. Again, normal I mean, by I guess comparison. I'm comparing, him to, <laughs> I'm comparing him to his appearance in American Psycho. He definitely seems like the measured, he does not come off in, you know, when I think about Patrick Bateman, you know, and that to me is Christian Bale in my brain's eye. But even then, you know, that vision did not come through at all. He comes off definitely as more measured compared to Sean. But there is, I feel like there is something when he talks about Evelyn where you're like, well, this guy also has an unhealthy connection to women. Yeah. Do, not to talk too much about the other books, do they talk about Patrick's mother in American Psycho? A little bit, yeah. I thought it was very interesting that Sean sees his mother as a demon, or maybe it was the inverse. He sees a demon that looks like his mother. Right. Yeah. Because we see Paul's mom. We see Paul's mom, but we don't see Sean's mom. That's right. Sean's mom, I don't know if this is the case over the course of the rules of attraction, but in American Psycho, she's in a, she's like in a home. Mm. I think she's in like a, a mental, like a psychiatric hospital. She has some kind of psychiatric disorder and she's institutionalized and she's like, just kind of fading away into nothing. (laughs) It's very sad. Yeah, they yeah. they both ha- and and you know their dad dies in this book or is dying, and Sean, you don't even really get the impression of what's happening because Sean is just like ah I'm here for my dad and then Patrick's like hey man our dad's dying dude 
uh, yeah, and Patrick like gives the impression of caring more, but like knowing Patrick, he probably doesn't, right? Yeah, I mean, he's but, <laughs> he comes across the on the outside as someone who's very put together. Yeah, but I guess that's his thing, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think that the the purpose that Patrick serves in this book is mostly correct me if you disagree, but I mm-hmm. think that he mainly serves the purpose of like he's a reveal that Sean has been lying about being like a Southern farm boy. Oh, see, I didn't even think about that because that seemed like so obvious to me that that was fucking bullshit. (laughs) Right. But yeah, Paul, Paul thinks that Sean is a Southern farm boy. Yeah. He also thinks he has a boyfriend named Jerry Garcia. What a moron. (laughs) Yeah. And so when Patrick comes in to narrate a chapter towards the end of the book, he's like talking about like inheritance and like they're going to this there. There's like clearly, clearly they're loaded. Clearly Mm -hmm. they're Manhattanites and they're they're like these heirs to this fortune. And that's like that's the first the first time that you actually know that Sean is not a poor southern farm boy and the fact that sean seems to be like hard up for cash all the time is just because like i don't know he makes terrible life choices like i don't know why he seems so poor he's just like i don't know he lost his money on the street or something he he guessed he blew it all on drugs i just felt like he didn't like care i didn't even ever feel like he was broke i felt like he was just being like that kind of grifter where like he could pay you if he you know wanted to and wasn't an asshole oh yeah but maybe i'm wrong because you have that scene at the end where he Oh, but even then, I, like, thought Sean was desperate for money, where he goes up to the dealer's house with that, like, guy whose name I don't even remember. He's just, like, Sean yeah. makes me, is making me drive up with him to this house. And then basically, like, sets him up and puts him in this, like, shitty situation <laughs> where you're seeing it from the other person's perspective. But I'm like, okay, so Sean fucking planned this. And he right. knew how this was going to play out. And then Sean just, like, drives away cackling, yeah. right? So he just, like, did that for fun. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I always got the impression, I love how you said correct you. First of all, this is your <laughs> podcast, and I feel like so much of this is up to interpretation anyway, but regardless, you would be the final authority. I, I am the final authority on all things Brady Stanellas. This is established. I just got the impression that he didn't feel like paying for things, which is what made, to me, what made when he's like, I'll pay for the abortion, and then later when he's with his friends, and they're like, hey, man why didn't you pay for it? And he's like, oh, I didn't like her that much. Like, what a, oh my fucking God. I could have like yeah. thrown the book. Like, I I really disliked Sean, but like, that's what, God damn it. I hate Sean Bateman so much. Yeah, Sean Bateman sucks so bad. He reminds me a lot, if I, on a personal note, <laughs> he, he reminds me a lot of the last guy I dated before I realized I was a lesbian. Um, and this guy, this guy was a complete piece of shit. And he, he came from money, but he just kind of had fucked his life up to the extent that he didn't have any money, even though he like was a rich guy. And he, I really, with this guy, watched like a sort of rules of attraction, like disparity of narratives play out in real time. Cause he just could never remember anything. Mm. He like, he, he blacked out a lot and he would be like, we never had that conversation. Like all the time, to- all the time he would be like this, that didn't happen. 
we never had this conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. How much of that is misremembering and how much of that is intentional gaslighting? It was, here's the thing. It, I feel like it was a healthy dose of both. He was clearly a Just monster. like Sean Bateman. And, yeah, ex- he was exactly <laughs> Sean Bateman. One thing that felt very like Paul and Sean in my relationship with this guy was he would get like blackout drunk and like take a bunch of Adderall and smoke a bunch of weed. And then he'd be like, we were like hooking up a bunch and he'd be like, I really want to take you out on like a real date. And I'd be like, okay, fine. And then, and then later I'd be like, so when do you want to go on a real date? And he'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not looking for anything serious right now. Mm. And we had that same interaction like four times. Also that same guy, one time he was telling me about his life and I was like, you are like a character in a Brett Easton Ellis novel. And he was like, I get that a lot. And oh, I was like, no, what? I was like, yeah, I was like, wait, really? People tell you you're like a character in a Brett Easton Ellis novel. Who do you think you are? I think oh, you're Sean Bateman. I, and he was like, oh, well, I mean, people tell me I'm like a character. Mm. <laughs> he was just very you dumb. Have seen my face when, oh, people. <laughs> yeah. He didn't register Sorry, the Brett Easton Ellis like, part. Didn't... <laughs> you didn't register the Brady Stanellis part. He was just like, yeah, people tell me I'm like a character. Like if someone told me more than once that I reminded them, not just if, if more than one person told me that I reminded them of a character from a Brady Stanellis novel, I would get very self-conscious and re-examine my personality. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what makes you different from Richie. <laughs> That one makes me different from characters in Brett Easton Ellis novels that I have to stop and recognize my own flaws. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's true. I wanted to actually get back to Paul real quick. Yeah, let's because do it. You had yes. been talking about how Paul is worse than Sean by your estimation. <laughs> I don't know if I'm still ready to say he's worse. I'm not trying to. By saying no. this, since the context of the conversation was about sexual assault, I'm not in any way trying to minimize <laughs> sexual assault. This is just my reading of a book. No worries. Um, <laughs> not real situations and real morals. Anyway, Sean uh, Paul is like a leech to me. I was thinking about this while you were talking about some things about him. He like like a relationship leech. Mm. He latches on very quickly and is like immediately like wants all those things and not not so intensely as Sean is with Lauren when he thinks that she's like this girl who had been leaving him notes. But mm-hmm. with Lauren, she was like reluctantly reciprocating like okay, whatever, this guy like wants to take me out, this guy wants to fuck me, he's an asshole, whatever, okay, who cares? In some ways, I guess, I, n- I hadn't thought about this before, in some ways she is like Victor, in that like it feels like she's just drifting in her dating life, where it's just like, well, I wanted some guy to go to sleep, or go to bed with, and Judy is out, and Franklin's around, so I guess I'll fuck Franklin, and that'll be it. Oh, Franklin wants to like have a thing now so I guess I have a thing with Franklin like that sort of thing but with Paul it feels like not only does he perceive how Sean feels totally differently than what Sean is putting out because even when you're reading Paul's chapters it's like he doesn't mean those things the way that you're taking them right he doesn't have oh I was thinking about that because I had mentioned Patrick or we were talking about Patrick Bateman and I had mentioned (laughs) Jerry when Sean's <laughs> offhandedly like, oh, it's Jerry Garcia. And he's like, oh, who's Jerry? And he thinks about that for the whole rest of the book. He thinks there's this guy named Jerry. He also thinks that, like, Patrick is some guy Sean is fucking. 
And right, like, yeah. sure, Sean doesn't go out of his way to be like, no, that's my brother. Like, that's what his mind immediately jumps to with any guy. It's like, oh, he's fucking someone else. And like, that is really the modern terminology would be toxic. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's just, it's a whole lot of things. And it's, it's a very human thing that you can recognize in a character, but it's also something that's like supremely not, I was going to say shitty. Um, and then I kind of dialed back. So I was going to say supremely not good, which is a weird combination. <laughs> I, I love that. Cause I don't, supremely not good. I'm still towing the line with Paul. I don't know, but it's definitely, he's not someone who has a healthy approach to dating and also yeah. thinks very lightly about sexual assault. Yes. <laughs> he's a big projector, right? He's yeah. like very skilled at seeing what he wants to see and really believing that he sees it yeah. wholeheartedly. Paul's a piece of shit. I wanted to switch back to talking about Sean and Lauren. Mm. I, this is one aspect of Sean that I really identify with and think is like a very realistic thing is that like he kind of doesn't really think about Lauren and then he thinks that she's obsessed with him yeah. through through like a, a misunderstanding and because he thinks she's already obsessed with him he becomes obsessed with her and I feel like that happens I feel like that ha happens to me when I was an adolescent just like oh he likes me now now I like him and now I'm very invested in like our future together and then that just being like totally misplaced like he, she doesn't actually give a shit about him and now they're both like weirdly settling mm -hmm. anyway I just think that that's that struck me as very real that was one of yeah. the things about this book that really like hit me hard when I first read it it's like oh I've never seen this like depicted before but that's totally a thing that happens so you now I can make a personal connection because you just reminded me of <laughs> okay. when I was in college I was in this pseudo love triangle with two roommates which makes it even more fun and complicated and it did have a touch of that because I was crushing incredibly hard on this one girl and then her roommate I think had a thing for me I I've there's some I thinks because some of this was relayed to me by other people who I don't you know how much I could 100% trust but this was my <laughs> my final interpretation of events. So I I felt very strongly about one of the roommates and then the other roommate um, had a crush on me. And then when I learned that, that is when I started to sort of feel reciprocal feelings. Um, mm -hmm. And at first it was like a, a settling thing, but then it was what felt like legitimate attraction. And then that like weirdly fell through and it was it was a very weird feeling because it was like, it was the feeling of rejection, but then that like, oh, was I wrong? Like, did I misinterpret things? And like, obviously things work out differently in this book, but I can only, now I'm just imagining like these things happening in reality because it's like, these things do happen all the time. Now I'm just rambling. Cause I like <laughs> watching, no, you're great. I'm thinking about how I felt as I was reading it. And, you know, reading, you know, him getting the notes and, and like you say, visibly not caring about Lauren and then being like, oh, she's the one. And then, yeah, uh, it's not disturbing, but like the way he talks about her is like, it's almost gross in a way. Cause when you know that she's not the one leaving the notes 
and he's just like masturbating to her vividly when he didn't, you know, when a day before he didn't think about her at all. Yeah. That's the part where it's like almost, you know, overblown. Yeah, there's uh, that's another thing that reminds me of another thing that strikes me as like so realistic is um, you get his accounting of like him and Lauren fucking and then her description of the same. Oh, yeah, sex. which I, I, like, I felt that coming. Yeah, he's like talking about how he loves going down oh on her and God. he like goes down on her for hours oh and she God. loves it so much. And then she's like, there's something wrong with him. He just won't stop <laughs> going down on me. And it's it's so weird. I'm just like laying here. And I feel like that is so real. Just just like they're describing the exact same physical interaction, but his interpretation of her level of enjoyment and her actual level of enjoyment are very, very different. Yeah, that's like, like I was saying, when you can see Sean putting out different emotional vibes to what Paul is picking up, you definitely feel mm-hmm. a few times that Sean is getting the wrong idea from sex. At one point, he's like, oh, I fucked her so good, I made her cry. And like, it's obvious that she was just upset. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like, pretty much every instance of sex in this book is only enjoyed by one person <laughs> at most. I certainly can't think of any any sex scenes that seem like mutually enjoyable. Maybe some maybe some of the Sean Paul stuff that Sean doesn't deign to ever reference. I feel like if if it was good he would remember it or talk about it. Yeah. Probably. Maybe Victor had good sex in Europe. That was oh, like cool. Yeah. Not yeah, the jerking maybe. off parts. Yeah. But I don't know. Do you think that it was also good for the girls that he was fucking? I feel like Victor's probably terrible in bed. Oh, man. Yeah, probably. Can, can you imagine a Victor being good in bed? I don't even think he regards himself as being good in bed. It's just like a thing he's doing. He pro- No, I can yeah. I, I can imagine exactly how Victor is in bed. God he's damn. He's a picture of pure instincts. Yeah. Okay, oh, you can picture exactly how he is in bed. Please describe. No. Oh, my okay. God. I, he just like, I, he's someone, no, he just like gets it over with as quickly as possible. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And then doesn't like have any regard for you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> We're on the same page. So, Brady Stanellis is a king of controversy. Mm-hmm. Do you find this book to be problematic? There's something else I want to talk about, and I won't say it first, but oh, okay. we can we can dovetail this conversation. <laughs> because you're talking about you know him and his writing now, I want to get on later about um, some of the experimentation in this book, because yeah. we talked about that before, and I wanted to get into that a little more. But yeah. in terms of the contents of this book, I mean, I don't find it problematic in that I don't think it's like glorifying or even normalizing it like it's not again my only other book for context is less than zero where in that one it's like obviously these people raping this 12 year old girl is bad um (laughs) but the book you know it opens with some it's it's Lauren right at the beginning of the book that's almost that's another one of those things where it's like you have to piece it together and it's almost thrown away not so much but it feels that way I think if I hadn't seen the movie in which it opens that it's Lauren and you're just seeing that it's Lauren, I think I would have missed the re- the reveal in the book that it was Lauren. Because they do hint at it later on, but it is like super just thrown away. And you have to like recall the language they used at the beginning because I think it again recalls it. Now I'm just being redundant. Anyway, <laughs> the book opens with Lauren being raped by two guys while she's passed out, but that 
it's it doesn't I don't know. Um the the part that I find I guess a little bothersome is that some of the stuff in Lauren's narration I'm like is this the way that a young woman in her late teens or early 20s really would think or feel? I don't feel like it was super male gazy or whatever. But even her narration in the beginning where it was like I always knew it would be this way. It's like is is that something someone would really think? Or is he just like dressing this person up to be like have like a rape destiny because that's kind of fucked up. But I wasn't reading this book feeling disturbed in the way that I felt it was inappropriate, I guess. Because the other stuff that bothered me that we talked about before I didn't find problematic or like, oh, this shouldn't be written about or this shouldn't be written about by a white man. Yeah, I agree. I also... I feel like this book depicts a lot of dubious consent and a lot of um, toxic masculinity and rape culture stuff, but I feel like it does those things pretty well. It's like a pretty good, I don't know if satire is the right word exactly. Maybe. A student from Camden College is now sitting on the Supreme Court. We all got to sit and listen as a country to like that version of right. this story like this guy just went you know they threw these part like it yeah. lines up so much and it's contemporary so it's like this is what was happening and it, yeah, it's, it's like relevant yeah yeah but it's not celebratory and it's not no. like yeah let's party yeah it doesn't make any of this this stuff seem cool no. <laughs> and and i think that like a female assault victim like lauren kind of being matter of fact about being assaulted is also very realistic Mm. um i think especially especially for the time period because i think sort of understandings of like what consent is really evolved in the last just like five years we've really come to a different understanding as a culture of like what is rape and this kind of feeling of like oh you know you get drunk people put stuff in you that you don't want put in you and then you wake up and you don't feel good about it but you just move on I think is actually like a very common experience and was even more common pre the me too era yeah um a lot of this feels pre-internet in particular actually yes um and like it's not really you don't see it depicted that much. Like usually when you see assault depicted, it's in a more kind of like overwrought dramatic um, and like given it's given a lot of weight, which makes sense. But I I think for a lot of people that it happens to, you are just kind of like, well, you know, that was, that was not great, but like, I still got to, whatever happened, whatever, I'll just move on. So I think it's actually really uh, effective in the touchy material that it deals with. And I often think that Brett Easton Ellis depicts things poorly and is a piece of shit. But this I don't think this book is an example of that. <laughs> I haven't gotten to those yet, I guess. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know if um, overall I don't think his books really are that problematic i think it's like hit him out in the world sharing his takes is where mm. things get problematic but i think that oh yeah the- I've, i have read some of those <laughs> yeah but for the most part his fiction i feel like does does what it's trying are to do pretty do, are you gonna do a podcast just dedicated to his hot takes 
I think I'm going to do a bo- at some point I think I'm going to do a bonus episode about his Twitter feed and oh, I might do a God. bonus episode about his podcast. <laughs> yeah, I I love his Twitter feed. I don't know how familiar you are. I, he, I he find really t- him to be a little insufferable online with a capital O to be perfectly honest. Yeah, for sure. That's like his whole thing. <laughs> He's extremely insufferable. Um, and I love it and hate it <laughs> in, in, in equal amounts. <laughs> um he doesn't really he's not really an active tweeter anymore but he went through a phase of being like very online i think it was between mostly like 2011 to maybe 2014 he was tweeting like constantly and like just always stirring the pot he was always there was always a vulture article that was like brett easton ellis goes off on and then whoever it was and it was super fun. It was a fun ride. It was it was exactly when I was first getting into him. So it was the perfect timing for me. But yeah, that stuff where he's speaking as himself is where he's a piece of shit sometimes. But I, I, I'm never really offended morally by his fiction. Occasionally, it offends my sensibilities. <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, say, I don't really feel like I even get much of a sense of his morals from reading this book. It's all stuff that's more matter of fact and observatory than opinionated, I guess, because this all definitely, like we said, is stuff that was happening and in some ways still is to a a definitely different extent. Yeah. And I do think that overall across his oeuvre and also particularly in this book, he is like a very amoral writer. And I think that sometimes critics of him will not not critics like people who criticize him, but like literary critics Mm -hmm will kind of read read moralism into his writing just because like we're seeing this behavior and this behavior is clearly abhorrent so then they're kind of like connecting the dots and saying like he's trying to draw our attention to this being abhorrent but I've always kind of gotten the impression that Brady Stanellis writes about Brady Stanellis <laughs> and he's just kind of like recreating his world and like his concerns and generally not really actively trying to like critique society, even though it, like sometimes he ends up critiquing society because he's an affluent white male <laughs> just depicting what he sees. So I guess I guess that's a way of saying that like I think he's a satirist through <laughs> no fault of his own. <laughs> like he just stumbled into it. But that is kind of how I feel about him. The way that he if if his Writing reflects his worldview and the events that take place in his books reflect his worldview. I definitely think that he has uh, an interesting way of perceiving the world and the things that go on in it because it's very extreme. And these things do happen, but to me and to the way that I view the world and have experienced it, they don't happen to the extent that they are portrayed in the two books that he's read. And certainly there are circles where it does. Like Less Than Zero, I felt more so like this terrible private school, I could believe that there were like things going on within the confines of this school. I felt like Less Than Zero seemed more believable than Rules of Attraction. Yeah, in some ways, even like the really horrible extreme stuff. It was like, I can, because it was so extreme, it wasn't like this was happening all the time. Like there was one occasion of this and like, obviously it was terrible and he laid witness to it, but I didn't get the impression that this was an all the time thing. Whereas... Rules of Attraction is um, depicting a culture more so to me, I guess. And it's 
it's a culture that feels exaggerated. I used caricature before, and I don't know if that's fair, but I do feel like it's exaggerated where <laughs> there are parties all the time in college, but it's it's like that, like almost like TV college in a way, not the same mm-hmm. way, but like the parties are so explosive and mm-hmm. everyone, you know, the house is destroyed and everyone fucked out in the open and all this stuff. And like, yeah, those parties happen, but those aren't the all the time parties. Those are like. But also, if I if I may offer a counterpoint, mm-hmm. we're both like working class millennials, and mm. he was like a super rich kid in the eighties. So I wonder if like I wonder if there was more like destroy the house, everybody's fucking on the lawn, like everybody's coked out parties. Yeah, I guess if, if you, you can were pay to clean it up the next day. Yeah. Like, I don't know. This is often a thing that I run into with Bretty's Danellis is I'm like, I don't know. Is this what it was like? I don't know. I wasn't there. He doesn't seem like necessarily a reliable narrator. I'm not sure. But yeah, so I think it's a, po- it's a possibility that that, that is kind of what his college experience was like. That in some way makes me ha- feel bad for him. <laughs> like yeah. in, a, in, in a way. Yeah. Sure. Let, let's all take a moment to feel bad for Brady Sinellis. I'm not trying to turn this into a Brady Sinellis pity party, though that would be no, a would great love, alternate name for the podcast. I would, I would love to turn it into a Brady Sinellis pity party. What do you think worst? What do you feel worst about for Brady Sinellis? Um, Here's what I feel bad about okay. for Brady Um He's most known for a novel he wrote before he was 30. And that is going to be... That's what you most feel bad for him about? He's most known for a novel he wrote before he was 30. But that he still has to live the rest of his life. <laughs> he's he's a fifty five year old man living under the shadow of his twenty seven year old self, and I think he's gotten to be a much better writer as time has gone on. But his level of acclaim for his newer works does not reflect that. And I think he probably knows that he's a better writer. And he's like, if people liked American Psycho, they should like Imperial Bedrooms even more because it's got the same good stuff, but it doesn't have the bad stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just there's no there's no getting out of it. He's just the American Psycho guy, and that's just what that's just what he has going for him. <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna leave that in. Okay, <laughs> I actually but, had something that followed on that, but it. you don't have to. Do no, let's do it. Go for it. Well, because I was thinking about that kind of thing while I was reading. Again, just to mention the only book I had read prior was Less Than Zero. And I did know sort of how he regards that book now. And it's like, oh, it's this book, you know, for for a book that a person of that age would write, it's impressive, but I'm not necessarily proud of it in my body of work. Yeah. I... There was stuff in Rules of Attraction that more to me felt like a try-hard young author than Less Than Zero, if -hmm. we can start getting into that stuff. For sure, yeah. So are you referring to the kind of like stream of consciousness thing? I'm talking about the chapter that's entirely in French. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, fuck, I forgot about the French chapter. God, that's such bullshit. I mean, talking about a pre-internet era, if I didn't have fucking Google for this shit... Am I going to get out a goddamn dictionary just to, like, read about Bertrand also being a self-absorbed asshole? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, God, I got, I, yeah, I, 
blocked it from my memory. But when I came across that French chapter again, I was like, I'm so pissed. Did you shut <laughs> the book? Had- I shut the book. I didn't. I I snapped a picture and sent it to somebody with like a very angry <laughs> caption. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just and you just look at this block of French text and you're like, what the fuck do I do with it? Like, do I go through <laughs> this and like see if I can recognize any words? No, I, I just you just skip it if you're a reasonable human, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's some bullshit. Well, I read James Joyce in college, so I went the extra mile and I Googled the French <laughs> chapter. But now you can just like Google <laughs> Rules of Attraction French chapter and it's all right yeah, there. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up James Joyce because I just read uh, an interview with Brady Stanellis from a couple years ago. It was in the Paris Review and the interviewer asked him about his use of stream of consciousness in Rules of Attraction. And he was like, well, look, would I write that book today? No. Uh, but at the time, I was a college student. I had just read Ulysses for the first oh, time. Oh, God. No fucking wonder. And I thought that stream of consciousness seemed super cool. Uh, and I was like, that, that was his takeaway from you. Fuck this guy. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, fuck this guy I for like sure. I like his book a little less now that you told me <laughs> that story. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, like... Where did you think he got? Well, no. And I mean, I said, like, I referenced James Joyce. So clearly there's stuff in here that's Joycean, but it's not like Joycean in a good way. (laughs) Yeah. So I've never read James Joyce because I have like very little, uh, very little patience for (laughs) experimental forms. Yeah, this was, Um, I read Ulysses in a class. Like the class was a Ulysses class. So yeah, I I got to take my time and spread it out. (laughs) Do you feel like, as a person who has not read Ulysses, I'm genuinely asking, do you feel like he lifted like the most annoying part of Ulysses without bringing in any of the good stuff? Is that well, what yeah, you're, you're saying? Stream of consciousness. So have you ever seen that meme of like where someone watches Neon Genesis Evangelion and all like the psychology flies over their head and they're like, wow, cool robots. <laughs> I feel like no, focusing on the stream of consciousness is very wow, cool robots when you read Ulysses. <laughs> like that's not... And so, and like having a fucking chapter in French, like, yeah, you're now you're making people do homework, but it's not like, are they going to want to, or are they going to look at your book and be like, are you fucking serious right now? Yeah. That's what you get when you publish, when you let a 22 year old publish a novel. That's what you get in the publishing industry. (laughs) I mean, he already had one. Yeah. His first one came out when he was 20. Yeah. It makes me sick to my stomach. (laughs) And while I'm on the topic of him being very young when he wrote Less Than Zero and Rules of Attraction. So the first time I read these two books, I was like 23. So I was a lot closer to his age than his age when he wrote them than I am now. And I think not coincidentally, they both like blew me away when I first Mm, read them. Interesting. Like the first time I read Less Than Zero, I was like, holy shit, the guy who wrote this was just like a couple years younger than me. Like, I cannot believe that. It's like so incredible. And then like going back and rereading it and also with Rules of Attraction, going back and rereading them now at age 29, I'm like, yeah, these are good like for a kid. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really talented like child. Um, And I don't know what to say about that, I guess. (laughs) funny well that's interesting i wish i i wish and in some ways i don't wish i had read rules of attraction in college i read less than zero when i was in college i was a little older than he was when he wrote it not that much i think i was like 21 but yeah i i got that feeling of like i can feel this i can feel that a person 
of the age that this is happening to wrote it and wrote about it. (laughs) With Rules of Attraction, I, it feels more, I don't know. I I was going to say juvenile. I don't know if that's the right word for it. Maybe it just shows more or maybe it's like in the writing style. Again, I think it's just because he's trying harder and that to me makes it feel more immature. I think that's fair. Yeah. Because I was definitely that kind of writer when I was in college. And I th- <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Because like I definitely tried to pull some shit where it was like, I see what you're going for, but why not like be a better writer first and then do the fancy stuff? <laughs> yeah, for sure. This, yeah, that's why I'm like <laughs> so critical of stuff that is experimental with form because I feel like it just really kind of is a crutch for most writers, like most, most writers who are doing like crazy experimental forms. It's not because they have already done all, all that there is to do in traditional narrative Mm. form. And now to branch out, it's just like, they don't want to do the work to master traditional storytelling. So they're just like, what if, what if a whole chapter was in French? I think in some (laughs) ways it's like not vain, but maybe, Somewhat narc- at least somewhat narcissistic because it's like a challenge to yourself and for mm-hmm. it's definitely not serving the audience or even the book yeah. really it's just like could I what if I wrote a whole chapter in French what if I started the book mid-sentence yeah this is again I don't want to branch out too much into his other books but this is one of my big critiques of American Psycho oh really <laughs> is that that's a book by Brett for Brett mm. <laughs> and like ugh. anyway is that why he doesn't ugh, like the movie that. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. Because I did not see, I was going to ask you, but I didn't watch Rules of Attraction. I did look it up a little bit and I like read the description and I, that's his like favorite of his movie adaptations, right? Yeah. I read the description and I was like, that doesn't, I don't know. I'll stick with reading this book. Yeah. The movie, I watched the movie before I read the book and before I cared about Brett Easton Ellis because I was just on like an Ian Summerhalder jag. <laughs> That's a um, nice, nice one to be on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I also think I think watching the movie was why I went into reading the book thinking Paul was a nice guy just because like oh. I like Ian Summerhalder and I think his performance was very likable. So then I carried that with me into the book. But the movie is like so faithful to the book, like really, really faithful to the book without like really capturing any of the stuff that is good about the book. Hmm. And I think, I think it's because the book is so internal and it's so about like different viewpoints. And that's really like, that's really like a literary thing. Like you'd have to to work hard. You have to work hard to like successfully adapt that into like a cinematic form and I don't think that the movie really did that. So when I when I read the book after watching the movie, I was like, oh, like this is what that movie was trying to be. <laughs> like now I think this is a good story, but it's just like it's missing big pieces. But then if you watch it having read the book and you're filling those pieces in, you know, on your own, I, I can see why Brett likes the movie because he has the story in his head and then he watches the movie and he's like, yeah, this is just what I imagine Sean being like. <laughs> and I know that Sean is doing this because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. But yeah, I think he loves that movie because it stayed very faithful to the source material and he is a little bit vain about his source material. And he thinks American Psycho does not work as a movie, which I think is just patently false. I think, he just doesn't want to 
strays from his source material. It definitely seemed faithful. As, I mean, compared to Less Than Zero, which unfortunately is a movie <laughs> I did watch after reading the book. Because, yeah, less <laughs> the less said about that movie, the better. Anyway, <laughs> I read a little bit about, like I said, I read like a summary of the movie. And it seems to make some things definitive that weren't so definitive or ambiguous in the book. And that bothers me. Especially like if it goes against your interpretation, like when I saw Life of Pi, the ending of that movie is so definitive. I'm like, you missed the whole fucking point of the novel. And it's not so bad. There's nothing that seemed like that to that extent to me in the Rules of Attraction movie. But like with the professor, she like definitively hooks up with the professor right in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I was going to say that is kind of the thing about like adapting an open to interpretation book into a movie is just kind of like by virtue of the form, like things are going to be more concrete in a movie because you're actually seeing it. But yeah, like the professor thing, that is just a conscious choice. (laughs) That's like they could easily have left that ambiguous in the movie. Like they didn't have to specify that she's fucking that guy. Uh, not a good movie though. I don't recommend it. I do not recommend it. All right, it. I'll I'll keep that in mind. I'm I'm glad you didn't make me watch it. Yeah. There's gonna be after I do all of the books, I'm gonna go through and do all of the movies. Oh, so there'll God. be a full episode about the Rules of Attraction movie. But yes, there will be a Rules of Attraction movie podcast in the future. But this is not that podcast. Yeah, we talked enough about the movie that I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah is there anything else that we wanted to talk about about this book that we didn't hit on yet i think i actually have touched on everything fabulous so then before we segue into rating it for our (laughs) lovely audience um i first want to pull up some old tweets from brett easton ellis oh fun from the glory days of his twitter so I don't know if you know that Brady Stanellis d- did this back in the day, but he w- he's sort of a J.K. Rowling figure. Oh, <laughs> and no. He'll, in what he'll, way? Let's say, like, this thing about this book is now canon. No. <laughs> like, he'll just make- I mean, I think he, he I truly think that he was doing it in like a much more much more like for his own amusement than jk rowling who i think like genuinely is just making proclamations <laughs> i think he was just kind of like fucking around the character that he talks about the most is patrick bateman obviously because okay. that's like his signature character but he tweeted a few times about sean bateman so this this is what he had to say on march 10th 2012 okay So Sean is gay and living in West Hollywood, and Patrick is visiting L.A. with plans to murder who? Famous actress? Anyone in Hunger Games? And then his next tweet. Patrick was at a party weeks ago where Lindsay Lohan swore she was going to sleep with Beckham. Patrick in L.A. with gay brother Sean? Paul? It sounds like he's working out novel notes in the form of tweets. Very weird. It sounds like then, he's, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I'll give you my take actually when you're done reading through these. Okay. Same night. So these three tweets are all in the same night. Yes, Sean Bateman is gay. Didn't anyone figure that out? What? Oh my God. This guy. <laughs> okay. What was your take? Go ahead. Well, first of all, actually, that made me think of one thing that I had meant to say. Okay. And this sort of pertained to Lauren, but also sort of pertained to Brett Easton Ellis's writing style and also may sort of just pertain to 
80s views on sexuality. I really didn't like how bisexual or like characters with a fluid sexuality were just classified by like how gay they were. In particular Mm -hmm. by Lauren. Like Lauren seemed to be the one who was like, oh, he was only a little gay. Oh, that guy is like too gay for me. Where like they would still fuck her, but like she's measuring them on the scale of gayness and then judging them by it. Right. And I don't know, again, if that's, like, something that bothers me about her as a character or, like, what the author's point of view is or was. Yeah. But him outwardly proclaiming that Sean is gay and it should be so obvious sure is something. Okay. My take on those tweets is that he's modern Seinfelding his own work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That was absolutely the, the main purpose of his Twitter account when it was in full swing, I think. He was like a self-parody, like at times intentionally and at times unintentionally, it seemed. Or were those times also intentional? It's very hard to say. He's very (laughs) I know. I know. I've got my my Charlie Day (laughs) strings on a cork board connecting connecting different newspaper strips all about uh, how self-aware Brady Stamellis is. Um. The thing I was going to say, since you said you're not sure where he's coming from in (laughs) having a character judge people on how gay they are, he did say in that same um, Paris, uh, the Paris Review Mm -hmm. interview that I read that when he was in college and he basically said that he always writes a male narrator who is the age he is at the time that he's writing and who is dealing with the issues that he's dealing with. And he said that when he was in college, he kind of like considered himself bisexual and he dated like an equal number of women and men and now he is gay and now sean bateman is also gay so so i think that those things have to be connected right so that's like sean like came out or you know realized he's gay after the events of this book could be taken that way because i'm i'm not reading sean bateman as gay in the rules of attraction yeah, I mean, he seems his attraction to women seems genuine for sure. To a point where it I, could be considered overcompensating psychologically. I guess like going down on a woman for like three hours and just like talking yourself into believing that she loves it might be the acts of a closeted gay man. I don't know. I always kind of felt like Sean seemed like a closeted bisexual. Mm. And I sort of felt like the fact that he doesn't talk about or address fucking Paul or any other dudes is like partially because he's blackout or like very at least very intoxicated a lot of the time that's happening. And then partially because he's just like he pushes it out of his Mm. mind because he doesn't want to think about it. So that's just not part of the narrative that he tells himself about his life. This is just a theory. I was going to say something like that before, too. So I'm glad you did. Good. It was I couldn't word it. I think you worded it better than I would have because we're on the same. We have the same idea. I was going to say something along the lines of him being ashamed of it. But I don't think it's like a conscious shame. It's more like, again, that's I guess that's what being closeted is like. Yeah, I definitely think that the the sense of like an unconscious shame makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Since I came out as a lesbian, I've done a lot of like reflecting on my past and been like, oh, I was like so clearly a lesbian all this time. But like, I felt like I was being honest with myself and felt like I was 
I felt like I was genuinely attracted to men and I felt like if I was a lesbian, I would know it. But there was just this whole other layer of shame that I just couldn't even recognize was there that was just like pushing this stuff down. And maybe I think maybe Sean Bateman's got that same thing going on as maybe we all come out. (laughs) I think I'm pan, but I think about stuff in high school and kind of cringe where I'm like, I I did that and I really thought I was straight, huh? Yeah. And I was out. I was out as as bisexual for a number of years before I came out as a lesbian. But I was just like really tricked myself into thinking that I wanted to be with men really effectively. And like now in retrospect, I'm like, that was clearly I never wanted that. It's the human mind's an amazing thing, you know? That's one word for it. (laughs) It It can convince you you want to have heterosexual sex. It can convince you that you should uh, write a stream of consciousness novel with a French chapter, (laughs) (laughs) capable of all kinds of self-deception. That's that chapter. I I am sometimes thinking about this podcast in terms of of lay people who haven't read the book, and I feel kind of bad for them because we're jumping around just like Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, those people should not be listening to this podcast. I don't know why they're (laughs) here. Okay, well, that's fine then. There's totally an acknowledged barrier of entry. Then never mind. No, but go ahead. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, it's it's if for people who haven't read the book, if they're still listening, it probably seems like there's a lot more French in the book than there is based on how much we're talking about the French chapter. It's totally skippable. There's like yes. nothing even significant there. It's just like an exercise. Yeah, it is just an exercise and a frustrating one. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly short. <laughs> But it's just it. Oh, it boils your blood. Maybe it's supposed to have more payoff when she like goes into their room and Bertrand is there and says something in French. But again, it's like then I just had to Google what that meant. Yeah, and yeah, at the time there was no Google, so you were just fucked. I have a little bit more Brady Stanellis Twitter to read. Ooh, fun. Okay, sorry, I didn't realize there was more. No, no worries. I broke it into two segments intentionally, although. I'm realizing that that series of tweets that I read, I think I missed the first tweet in the series. So that series of tweets was kicked off with the following. Oh, these tweets are so old. Okay. (laughs) This is the first tweet in that series from March 10th, 2012. The other novel I've been thinking about is Sean Bateman as a total fag in West Hollywood where he contracts. Oh my God, spare me. Please, I hate when. The local pavilions. I'm sorry I interrupted, but, like, it's fine to do that shit in the 80s. Like, please stop saying that. Like, please. I get that, like, I'm such a sensitive millennial. Like, fuck off. Just don't use that word. God damn it. Yeah. You you feel like um, gay men shouldn't use that word either? I mean, I don't. And I'm not, I'm not gay. I'm a man who is attracted to men. But, like, I... I've used that word in one context and it was like being very aggressive towards someone who was clearly being homophobic to me. But like aside from that and me being like really aggressive and heated, I wouldn't use that word to refer to myself. I wouldn't use it to refer to another gay person. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. And yeah, I don't really like it when other gay men use it either. I mean, clearly that was a genuine reaction. Yeah. And I felt, you know, I felt about, I thought about warning you before I read it, but then I just, I just jumped in. You got, well, I'm not mad that you read it. I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, if you wanna, if you wanna say the word "dyke" to me, <laughs> I used that word even once when I was like sixteen, and I still think about it. I still really? think about like the one time I said that to someone. I wasn't like using it as a slur in like using it casually. Yeah, kind of. And I mean, they got upset. Um, 
I'm fine not using that word. That's okay. I say dyke fairly often. I refer to myself as a dyke and I'll talk about like dyke bars and stuff. But I think that dyke has entered like the queer lexicon a lot more than the F word has. Yeah, I mean, I try like, no, one, no one refers to an F word bar, but like dyke yeah, bar is yeah. an accepted phrase. I try not to like tell people that they can't reclaim words. And it ultimately, if he wants to say it in his life, it's his life and his mouth and, and fingers and whatever. As a public figure, that like makes me uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, when I think about like gay men trying to reclaim that word, the first man who comes to mind is fucking Milo and his like terrible <laughs> shit. So like, I'd rather not. It seems like he uses it in bad faith. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem like he's trying to reclaim it. It seems like he's using it to describe a certain type yeah. of game. He's trying to make has... him sound like sleazy. Yeah. And he's a big, like, free speech guy, like, political correctness is run amok guy. I'm yeah. So uh, I think taking like the context of what we know his stances to be, I think it's fair to be like, Brady Stanellis, please don't, please don't use that word. <laughs> okay. So those were all from March 10th, okay. 2012. I appreciate the context. Now I have a fuller picture of how he sees gay <laughs> Sean Bateman. Right. Yeah. Eight months later, in November of 2012, he revisits the topic of Sean Bateman just ever so briefly. November 11th, 2012, he says, Sean Bateman is alive and happily closeted in West Hollywood, hooking, <laughs> hooking up with Taylor Lautner, whom he affectionately re refers to as Batface. There's like one. And on that, okay, I'm on sorry. That Sean Bateman's saga forever. Oh, that's the only one. I thought there were more. That one's a standalone. Oh my yeah. god! I just there's one thing I'm on board with in that tweet. Can you guess what it is? Uh, is it that face? No. Is it? Is it cooking up with Taylor Lautner? It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. And I guess when you tie like closeted made me like roll my eyes, but then like closeted and hooking up with Taylor Lautner, I'm like, okay. I mean, I can at least see like. You know, Taylor Lautner being closeted, having this like blind item gossip Hollywood relationship thing. But like to go from being like, oh, man, my gay McGay face character and then being like, oh, by the way, he's closeted. Like, what the hell, man? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think that these are like, I guess one of the the first series, the he's contracting AIDS series. He's saying, that's a novel I'm thinking about writing. But with Taylor Lautner, he's just saying, this is true. He's saying, this is where Sean is right now. He's not saying, I'm thinking about writing this. He's just like, FYI, Sean Bateman is fucking Taylor Lautner. I missed the and, you part know, about him contracting AIDS. Oh, yeah. I think it's because it, you were upset about yeah. the F word. And you're, I think your groan <laughs> drowned out the fact that he contracted AIDS in that tweet. I have a louder groan at that, just like <laughs> inside me. Yeah, it was, he's a total F word in West you Hollywood. I don't, I don't necessarily want to say it more than once okay, in this podcast. Um, uh, in West Hollywood, where he contracts AIDS in the local pavilions is the in in, complete uh, tweet. Like, there's so much there that's like, see, I get, like, when I'm reading these books that were written in the 80s, I'm like, okay, I get it. But, like, when he's saying that stuff in 2012, I'm like, come on, dude. What are 80s you talking never ended, about? 
<laughs> contracting AIDS in the pavilions? What I don't are you know talking what, about? Yeah, I don't know what that means either. I don't know what the pavilions are. <laughs> I haven't lived in LA very long, so maybe that's a legit thing, but I don't know what that means. It's. I guess it's good. Don't immerse yourself in Brett Easton Ellis's world, either real or imagined. <laughs> oh, it's too, a little too late for that. <laughs> okay, so that's that's all we've got on uh, Sean Bateman retconning. I think I'm going to call this that segment Brett conning. Oh my god! Did you just <laughs> think of that? I thought of it last night actually, and then I forgot <laughs> to introduce it that way. That's great. So much. Oh, okay. So now. I guess it's time for us to get down to business and to rate this book on a scale of one to five. Okay. You can use whatever scale you would like to use. If you would like to come up with something that ties into the book, I'm going to rate it on a scale of one to five fake blood packets. Okay. Um, do you, I would love to cede to you and let you go first if you are prepared. I felt like I was actually. We talked about okay. this a little bit before we recorded. I'll pull that curtain away. But <laughs> now I feel like over the course of this conversation, my feelings have changed and maybe that would cause my rating to change. But then I feel like maybe that's too conditional and the number it's making me think of feels unfair. So Okay. I think you can totally you can totally give what you came in thinking your rating was and what you're going out thinking your rating is. I'll allow that. Okay. So, and I can't think of, I'm sorry, I didn't have enough time to think about a, a quirky rating. That's on me. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's nothing, nothing left as big an impression on me to make something like that. So maybe that's why uh, I'm giving this book three whatevers out of five. Yeah, I uh, I am also giving this book three fake blood packets out of five fake blood packets. And the first the first time I read it, I gave it four hmm. fake blood packets out of. <laughs> well, I guess I just gave it four stars because this was on Goodreads. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I definitely downgraded it a whole star upon this reread. And I think, you know, the first time I read it, I was the right age and the right life condition to read it and really have it resonate with me. And now I've slightly outgrown it and it feels a little immature but I still I I think it's got good characters mm -hmm. overall and there's a fair amount of scenes that I think are like really funny and a fair amount of scenes I think are like emotionally affecting but there's also like partway through the book I feel like it really starts to lag and it's really like okay I'm ready for these narcissistic 21 year old assholes to shut up and leave me alone and I feel like this with almost every Brad Easton Ellis book it could be it's short but it could be way shorter it could be shorter it, how many pages shorter do you think it could be okay let me see how long this book is this book is 283 pages mm -hmm. I'm gonna say comfortable this could be a good tight 200 page novel mm, okay <laughs> So you're cutting more. I was going to say it could be 50 pages shorter. For sure. Easily 50 pages. For sure. 83 Maybe I'm just pages. just too generous. I mean, we'd have to really go through and, <laughs> uh, and really assess. 83, I might be cutting it a little close to the bone. 50 for sure. That's an easy. We can easily cut 50 <laughs> yeah. pages. Oh, I forgot. There was one more thing that okay. I wanted to talk about in this book that we touched on but we didn't really talk about the aspect of it i wanted to talk about which is clay easton right. he narrates a single chapter wait that guy's last name is easton yeah Jesus his name is easton. <laughs> yeah for sure um <laughs> so clay easton ellis that's not his name he's just clay easton. 
<laughs> but I sometimes call him Clay Easton Ellis. That is fair. <laughs> Clay Easton narrates a single chapter towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And also before that, there are some references to him. People talk about like the kid from the kid from LA, the kid yeah, from the California. Kid with the yeah. And then there's one part where somebody like looks at a door and it says rest in peace yeah. called. And I think that's that Rip called mm-hmm. and Rip is the character from Lesson Zero. So for the most part, Clay is a totally just like peripheral character with no effect on the story. And then we just hop in and he narrates a chapter that has no connection to the rest of the story. Like it's just him on his own, like hating college and missing LA, which is the reverse of how he yeah. feels in Less Zero. Do you think that that works? For me, having read Less Than Zero, it works. I think for me, maybe that might be one of the... I think it's almost generous to call the devices in this book Joycean. But (laughs) if that's what he was going for, all right. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that feels like it almost requires outside research or knowledge. Like... If, if you have no context for who Clay is, then yeah, it's really random that he's suddenly narrating the chapter, talking about characters who aren't really in this book. I mean, people mention Blair, but she's even more on the peripheral. And then Rip is not in the book at all, but he's just like writing stuff to Clay. I feel like divorce of context, maybe you would find some... <laughs> you can hear how generous I'm trying to be. Uh, find some parallels between Rip as this West Coast guy and what these like East Coast students are dealing with. But Clay, yeah, I think, right? yeah, Clay. Right. But I feel like it's definitely meant more for people who read the first book or to get you to like want to read the first book. But as someone who read the first book, it was, I appreciated the insight because I it, it feels very consistent for Clay to be spending all this time in California moaning about how he wants to be on the East Coast and then get back there and be like, I wish I was in L.A. where I could be sunny and warm. Yeah, absolutely. To me, yeah, Clay narrating a chapter of this book feels like the literary equivalent of how like the Marvel movies will just be like, be like, oh, we're teasing the next movie. I think the like, Marvel movies just- do a better job of it <laughs> Yeah, totally. for the most part. I totally see that. Um, But yeah, it's like, yeah, you have to have read the, you have to have read Less Than Zero to have any understanding of like why this fucking, (laughs) why we're hearing from this fucking jerk off all of a sudden. I don't think he's that bad. I mean, maybe by comparison. I'm not, uh, I'm not calling him a jerk off because I think he's like a piece of shit. I'm just calling him a jerk off because he's like totally wrong. Who's this guy? Yeah. Who the fuck is this? Who's this asshole? it's just it's pointless like why isn't there like if he wants to if he wants to weave clay into the story like okay weave clay into the story but have him have a reason for him to be there have him be somebody but he's not uh anyway yeah so i think that that chapter is uh bullshit but it is a fun it's a fun easter egg if you've read less than zero but that's like its only purpose uh okay <laughs> so i just i just wanted to make sure that we addressed no that. i'm glad we did because that was actually like a major part of my reading experience because that was like my only connection so i was like i know that guy i know this guy yeah. <laughs> and yeah all of um if you go on to read any more brad easton ellis novels they all connect with each other they all have overlapping characters the only one that doesn't have like 
the same Brett Easton Ellis cinematic universe characters uh, coming into contact with each other is Lunar Park because the narrator is Brett Easton Ellis. So he lives in the universe oh, that frame. <laughs> you should have Lunar seen Park. what my eyebrows did when you said that. Let me tell you something. It is his best book. Okay. I, spoiler alert for the Lunar Park episode. I fucking love Lunar Park. It's phenomenal. But you know, I'm a I all I want to think about is Brady Stanellis. And then he wrote a book that the main character is just Brady Stanellis thinking about Brady Stanellis. So I'm the perfect target audience for that. I don't know if it works as well if you're not already obsessed with him. Okay. So that and that's it. Andrew, we did it. We talked a whole lot. That's a whole lot. There was a lot to say. Yeah, I so, guess so. Three whole pages. And there's more and like all narrators. And we talked about the least necessary ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what you get for throwing in unnecessary narrators. They eat up space in the conversation. I'd like to bring a little balance into everybody's uh, literary diet. I want to close out every episode by recommending a book, not by Brett Easton Ellis. And for me, I'm going to try to always recommend a book that is not by a white dude. But my guest is free to recommend whatever book they would like. So for my recommendation corner pick for this week, I'm suggesting So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Aluo. I just finished listening to the audiobook of this, and it's a really great book. She's a, if you're not familiar with her, she's a really cool journalist. The first time I came into contact with her work, she wrote a really interesting profile of Rachel Dolezal, that lady in Seattle oh who God. pretended to be black for like 20 years. Really great writer. And this book, I think, is I saw a lot of people on Twitter be like, everybody needs to read this book, literally everybody. And then I finally read it and I was like, yeah, you know what? I think this is relevant to everybody. Like it is aimed at like white people who are currently shitty and it's aimed at like white people who are doing their best, but like maybe not perfect. (laughs) And it's aimed at like people of color and like people of color who are good with intersectionality, people of color who need to get better at intersectionality intersectionality uh it's a really great book and it's both like very intelligent and like very readable and enjoyable even though parts of it obviously due to the subject matter are uh pretty dark really great book the audiobook was great sometimes you get a shitty narrator but this one was fabulous so that's my suggestion so you want to talk about race by ijoma aluo andrew what do you have for the people before and before I forget, I actually have a question now because you mentioned audiobooks. Uh-huh. When I was when I was starting to read this, I'm seeing someone who is a big audiobook listener. Mm. Does Brett Easton Ellis narrate his own audiobooks? No, he okay. does not. The Lunar Park audiobook is narrated by uh, James Vanderbeek, and he does a really good performance as Brett Easton Ellis. It's <laughs> it's really great. Um, and the American Psycho audiobook is read by uh, Pablo Schreiber, who played oh, Pornstash. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> he's great. And I didn't, li- yeah, I haven't listened to the whole audiobook, um, but I listened to like a sample of it, and he did. It was really good. That was a really good reading. If you're gonna listen to, if you want to listen to an audiobook of American Psycho, like go for it. It sounds really good. Okay. I listened to the Less Than Zero audiobook. That was just some kid. I don't, I don't think he was anybody I know, but it's like a young guy. But no, Brady Sinellis does not do okay. his own audiobook work. Just curious. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish that he would. But on the other hand, I 
I think he has like a kind of insufferable voice. Like I love it, but it's definitely like you don't feel sympathetic listening to him. And I feel like maybe his writing needs to be tempered by like somebody who can make the story a little bit more palatable with their delivery. Okay. Good I felt like he would. So yeah, I could, uh, I could see that he, maybe he will, he has a, he has a collection of not like essays coming out in April and they're kind of modeled after the like opening monologues that he does on his podcast. So if he were to narrate a book, I think certainly that would be the one, but I think maybe the reason he doesn't for the most part is just that I don't know that he has the patience to like mm. go sit in a studio and like read the same lines over and over until they sound right when like they can just pay somebody else to do it all right well thank you for satisfying my curiosity now yeah, no problem. anytime you got questions about Brady Stanella's audio books I am your lady I appreciate it my <laughs> book recommendation is Mr I'm showing it to the non-existent camera <laughs> Mr Fox by Helen Uyeyemi Ooh, I haven't heard of that yeah oh you haven't I feel like no. you would probably like it Okay. It's about a writer. The writer is named Mr. Fox. And Mr. Fox has a uh, unhealthy writing habit of uh, killing his heroines. Mm. And so one of his... And he, he projects some things romantically and about his marriage onto the heroines of his books. And one of his heroines uh, comes to life to confront him. Oh, that sounds great. Yes, it's very interesting. Very cool. All right. Uh, Andrew, is there anything that you would like to plug? Oh, right. So um, I'm on Twitch and I play video games and talk over them and might even have a camera set up soon. Uh, Twitch.tv slash cmarshplay. I also am a professional radio producer and audio editor. If you are in the business of podcasting or are interested and need an audio producer or editor, please feel free to uh, contact me and reach out. I am on Twitter at NotTheMarsh, and you can always DM me. I'm not going to give out my email on this podcast. But yeah, I'm always looking to make people's podcasts sound better. All right. Hire Andrew. He is very qualified and talented <laughs> and a wonderful person <laughs> i came on this podcast just so you would give me unsolicited compliments <laughs> i am at katie l Wright on twitter i also teach free creative writing workshops in the san fernando valley if you're in the la area follow me on twitter for updates about those and uh, pick up pick up a Brady Stanellis book read it tell me what you think about it i want to hear <laughs> and i want to i want to end every episode because i love Brady Stanellis's vintage tweets so much one of my favorite things about Brady Stanellis's twitter of old was how aggressively shamelessly and hilariously he would drop names so i'm going to end each episode with a different glorious Brett Easton Ellis name drop this one is from May 24th, 2013. Cooking dinner tomorrow night for Eli Roth and Marilyn Manson at my place, and I have no idea what to make. Deciding now. Chicken, I guess? Thank you guys so much for listening. Please rate us on iTunes and check out some of our fabulous brother and sister podcasts here on the Major Casts Network. And follow at Brett Easton Pod on Twitter.